Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. We're beginning a brand new series in the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. It's called um, Wartime Letters. You see, the book of Revelation is really Jesus' wartime letters to his children. And the fact is, is that any time there was a war that was going on, soldiers would always say that the thing that sort of kept them going were letters from home. That whenever they would get a letter from home, it would change their perspective in the midst of their crazy chaos. It would help them remind themselves what they were actually fighting for. It'd give them hope that, okay, this is where we're going to return one day. And so these wartime letters were the things that sustained them and became an anchor for their soul. Well, that's what the book of Revelation is. You see, Jesus Christ is going to be sending, this is called the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is sending a letter, a message to his children who are going through a season of war. And that's what this book is all about. And so what I'd like to do is I want to go, well, how does that encourage us during the trials and difficulties of life? Well, let me start off with this story. I mean, um, this guy right here, General Anthony McAuliffe, said this. His famous lines was, you're nuts. Nuts. You know, what, what is that all about? Well, it was 1944. It was in the midst of World War II. I mean, basically, it was the Battle of the Bulge. General McAuliffe, he was the general that was over the 101st Airborne, the Screaming Eagles, and Hitler decided one last chance that he was going to have to defeat the U.S. troops. And so it's called the Battle of the Bulge. It literally, he sent everything he had. He sent 1,400 tanks, 410,000 troops into what he perceived was the weakest line of the Allied front, and it worked, and it pushed us back, and literally the Americans were completely surrounded. I mean, we were outmanned, we were outgunned, I mean, we were out of medical supplies, people were dying every day, I mean, defeat was inevitable, that's what was going to happen here. In fact, what made it even worse is that this was the coldest winter on record, and so Defeat was inevitable. They were surrounded. I mean, just a matter of days, they're all going to get killed. And so December 22nd, the the Nazis sent four soldiers across enemy lines with a letter demanding immediate surrender, to which General McAuliffe said something like this. He said, you're nuts. (laughs) He, He said, you know what? Nazis to the north, Nazis to the south, Nazis to the east, Nazis to the west. I know we're completely surrounded, but you're nuts if you think that I'm going to surrender. Now, how could he have courage in the midst of obvious defeat? Well, you see, he had received a wartime message from the Allied headquarters. And that message said that the U.S. 4th Armored Division was on its way. General Patton was coming with all of his tanks. And not only that, we have air supremacy, and, you know, all we need is a couple of clear days, and we're going to bomb the Nazis all the way back to Germany. And so even though physically it looked like defeat was inevitable, even though he saw his men dying every day, he looked at defeat and said, I'm not surrendering. Why? Because he had a different perspective in the midst of the battle. Well, that's what you and I need. 
There are times in our life when we look at the circumstances of life and the trials of life, and we're like, you know what? I just need to give up. But you need to know that there's someone that will stand with you, that will give you victory even in the difficulties of life. Like what? Well, maybe you're at school and you're being bullied, but you're not going to be afraid. Why? Because you've got a big brother that stands over you, right? Or, or maybe, you know what? You're going through a time of grief and sorrow, but you're not going to give in because you're surrounded by loved ones that are holding you up. Or maybe you're facing some kind of you know, major surgery in your life, but you're not going to give in to fear. Why? Because you know you've got this great medical team that's around you. What I'm trying to say is, is that whenever you know you've got the right person on your side, you can press on even in the midst of difficulty. The point is this. Even if you already know that you've got the victory, you can persevere to the end. If you know the battle's going to be won in the end, you can persevere to the end. And if that's true on the playground, and that's true in the hospital, and that's true in the battlefield, it is definitely true for you as a child of God. And that is the book of Revelation. It is Jesus' wartime letter to his children saying, I know things are tough, but I'm going to give you a victory lesson. We're going to win. And I'm going to explain to you how we're going to win. Now, there's three things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at today, Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And there's three incredible truths that I believe that will encourage you facing whatever you are facing today. And so I want you to jot on your outline. Number one is this. First of all, this book, the context of it, is the persecution of Christians. The readers, the first readers of this book, were in experiencing, enduring, incredible persecution. Look at how this is written in verse 9. I, John your brother and partner in affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos. By this time, the Apostle John is an aged old man. This is mid-90s AD. He's the last remaining apostle. And what's going on? He's been exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Now, Patmos is not Maui, folks. Patmos is basically this barren, windswept island in the Aegean Sea. It's where the, um, you know, where the Romans would dump their prisoners, and he's left there, and he's abandoned, he's isolated from everybody. It's like being put on Alcatraz. And you go, well, why? Why, why, why was John, you know, put there? Well, look what it says in verse 9. Why am I in, on the Alapamas? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of his faith and his testimony of Jesus Christ, he has been pushed away from society and culture, and he is isolated. But he's not the only one. The entire church is experiencing this. Look again at verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother, and what? And partner in the affliction. You see that word partner there? That's the word for fellowship. Now, most of us, when we think of church fellowship, we think of, oh, we're going to have potluck dinner. We're going to have fellowship at church, right? Or next, next week, right? We got a fun day at Silverdale. It's going to be fellowship. We're going to have food. We're going to hang out with each other, play games. We're going to have church fellowship. Can I tell you the first century church, their fellowship was in suffering, that's what they had fellowship with. And in fact, as we study the next few chapters, Jesus is going to have individual letters to individual churches that are going through seasons of suffering. Let me just give you a little snapshot. Revelation 2.3, Jesus says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name. Revelation 2.9, I know your affliction and poverty. Revelation 2.13, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith. The context of the book of Revelation is that the church is going through a season of tribulation. 
Now, we know that biblically, but we also know that historically. Historically, there were 10 waves of persecution that came upon the early church. The first one was with Emperor Nero. Nero was a bad, bad man. He killed his wife. He killed his mother. In 64 AD, Rome burned, and everybody was blaming Nero. So he, like a good politician, needed somebody to blame, so he blamed the Christians. And suddenly, there became an intense persecution of Christians. But guess what? The Christians endured and persevered. And then another emperor came, this guy, Vespasian. Vespasian, he tortured Christians. What he would do, he fed Christians to lions. Vespasian is the one who took Christians, would impale them, cover them with oil, and light them so that his gardens would be lit by Christians. In fact, 70 AD was probably one of the most intense times of persecution on the church. In 70 AD, that's the time whenever Jerusalem fell. I mean, it was destroyed. So you have the Jerusalem church, which was the head of the early church. It's completely scattered by this time. But you know what else happened in 70 AD? In 70 AD, listen to this, you have the Apostle Peter, you have the Apostle Paul, and Timothy were all publicly executed. Wow, those are some big heavy hitters in the first century church, right? That'd be like today, you leave church today and you look on your phone and go, oh my goodness, our government, you know, took out of their churches um, John Piper and um, Tony Evans and um, Rick Warren and put a gun to their head and blew their heads out. You go, whoa, that's tough. Yeah, that's the early church. That's 70 AD. But guess what? The Christians endured, and they pressed on and persevered in Jesus. And then what happened? Well, it got worse. You had this guy right here, Domitian. He became emperor, and he, he wanted to be worshipped as God. So he actually built his own temple in Rome, and he said, everybody's to come to Rome, come into my temple, and throw incense into the fire, and declare, Caesar is Lord. If you don't, you're going to die. Well, guess what? Christians, we couldn't declare that Caesar is Lord because we've already declared that Jesus is Lord. And so what happened is this, this intense, intense persecution began to happen, and, and, and Christians were hunted down and hounded at every, any, any particular area. They were kicked out of their jobs. Folks, that's the context of the book of Revelation. Now, can I just tell you something? If we lived in that first century, 95 AD, and we were under this kind of persecution, you know what? It would have been really tempting, wouldn't it, to give up, to quit, and say, you know what? This is following Jesus' thing. This is just too tough. This is just too hard. I mean, it would be really easy to give in to, you know, the peace of Rome and travel the Roman roads and, and ex, you know, experience the sensuality of Rome. I mean, following Jesus is just too hard, Right? Can can I tell you something? The church in America, we don't really understand persecution, do we? We we don't. I mean, we know, we're like, you know, I'm being persecuted. I'm being inconvenienced. I've got to wear a mask for a couple months. Or you know what? We, we, the, the church in America, you know, one year of COVID shuts us down, right? I mean, here's the deal. Right now, the church in America, 25% of people that were active and serving in church a year ago are nowhere to be found today. Why? Because we had a little inconvenience called COVID. Folks, we don't understand persecution. The early church did. I mean, think about it. For 30 years, if you were a young Christian at this season of time, your entire life, 30 years of persecution, that's all you know. If I'm a follower of Jesus, it's going to cost you something. 
You're not going to get that job promotion. You're going to be hounded. You're going to be talked against. People are going to say evil, wicked lies against you. Why? Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you're not going to be protected under the law. No, you may be killed because of the law. And listen to me. It's not just for the early church. Jesus said that's coming to us. Look at how Jesus put this in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. 2 Timothy 3.12, the Apostle Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Listen to me. Persecution and tribulation is part of what you signed up for as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of us as American Christians, because we never experienced any kind of this persecution, we just sort of push back and go, oh, no, I, I can't do that. Listen. I'm thankful that we as a church in America haven't experienced this kind of persecution. But listen to me, it is coming. It's coming. And there's going to come a time when following Jesus means that you're going to lose something. You may lose some friends. You may lose some family members. You may lose that job promotion. Why? Because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to be verbally accused. You're going to be lied about. That's what's coming to the church. So let me ask you a simple question. If Jesus was enough for the first church, is Jesus going to be enough for whatever you walk through right now? If Jesus was enough for them, can Jesus be enough for you right now? And the answer is absolutely he is. And so the context of Revelation is intense persecution of the church. But the only way you're going to get past that intense persecution is to have a vision of Jesus. That's why this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so jot down this second point. Jot this down. You need the picture of Christ. You need the picture of Christ. Now, what is it that comes to your mind whenever you think of Jesus? What picture, what image comes to your mind? For me, I've got to be honest, this image right here is what comes to my mind because in all my Sunday school classrooms growing up, that was the picture of Jesus that was hanging there, right? I mean, you know, he's got a Caucasian, American, handsome-looking Jesus. Now, I know Jesus didn't look that way. He was Jewish, so he had black hair. He didn't look anything like that, right? But did you know there's only one physical description of Jesus in the Bible? It's found in Revelation chapter 1. It's not Jesus in the Gospels. No, it's Jesus in heaven. It's the resurrected, glorified, heavenly Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic language. You know, what does that mean? It means it's written in a lot of symbolism. You'll see the word like, 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 like. He was like this. He was like that. And so what does that mean? That means this is a literal Jesus, but he's described in very symbolic ways. So check it out. Look how Jesus is described in verse 10. The Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You know what, that, that, that's Sunday. Sunday was now called the Lord's Day. Can I just tell you something, folks? This is the Lord's Day. This isn't your day. This is the Lord's Day. And I heard a loud voice behind me, like a trumpet, saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, um, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Now, the most common description that Jesus gave and title of himself was the Son of Man. You read the Gospels, hundreds of times Jesus described himself as the Son of Man. So we know this is Jesus. 
It's from the book of Daniel, describing the Messiah. Now, the last time we saw Jesus, Jesus sort of like meek and mild, humble Jesus. Not anymore. Jesus is powerful and he's mighty. Can I just tell you, he is terrifying, okay? And so what I've done here on your outline, I've put down the eight characteristics. I'm just going to go through them real quick. But eight characteristics that we just see here in Revelation 1 describing Jesus Christ. Number one, first of all, Jesus is royalty. Jesus is royalty. Look at it, verse 13. One like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. Jesus is seen here in a long robe with a sash. Last time John saw him, Jesus was dressed as a commoner, not anymore. Jesus is dressed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the great high priest. There he is in majesty. Second thing, Jesus is eternal. Look at how his hair is described. Verse 14. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus looked old, okay? It's not like John saying, ooh, Jesus, you really aged since the resurrection. No, the idea is that Jesus is eternal. In fact, this exact description is found in Daniel chapter 7 to describe God as the ancient of days. It's in essence saying that I'm the eternal one. I'm the aged one. I'm the ancient of days. I'm the alpha and omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. There's nothing that came before me. There's nothing that could come after me. And guess what? He's the God of the past. He's the God of the future. But guess what? He's also the God of right now. So what else? Jesus, number three, is all-seeing. Look at how he's described in verse 14. And his eyes like a fiery flame. Now, notice again, it doesn't say that Jesus' eyes were fire. It's like a fiery flame. What's that talking about? That's the blazing eyes of Jesus' all-knowing, all-seeing ability. Ever know somebody that can look into you, and it's like they're looking into your soul? That's what Jesus Christ can do. Look at how the writer of Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is all-knowing. He is all-seeing. Fourth way Jesus is described, Jesus is holy. Look at it in verse 15. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. Now, Jesus doesn't right now have bronze feet. No, it's like bronze feet. What does that mean? That means that it's, been, it's gone through the furnace. It's been tried. It's been true. It's now purified completely. Jesus Christ is completely holy. And guess what? Jesus is going to trample his enemies under his righteous feet. Next description, number five, Jesus is mighty. And his voice, like the sound of cascading waters, like mighty waters, like a waterfall. Have you ever stood next to a waterfall, a huge waterfall? Try to hold a conversation, you can't do it, right? I mean, you, you're yelling at the person, they can't hear you. Why? Because the sound of the mighty waters, that's Jesus. Jesus is mighty. Can I tell you something? When Jesus speaks, you don't talk back to Jesus. Number six, he has authority. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. Now, the right hand always represents the hand of authority, and it says here he has seven stars. What is that all about? We're going to find out in verse 20 that the seven stars represent the seven angels assigned to the seven churches that Jesus is going to address. What does that mean? I believe that every church of Jesus Christ is assigned a warrior angel by Christ. That means that our church has a warrior angel assigned by Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Jesus controls all those angels and what they do. He has all authority. Number seven, Jesus is the word of God. Verse 16, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. That's exactly how the word of God is described. 
Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. What does that mean, a two-edged sword? That means it has dual purpose. When Jesus speaks, sometimes it convicts, sometimes it comforts. It may judge or it may bring joy. It can hurt and it can heal. And Jesus' word is powerful. He speaks it and it happens. One final characteristic of Jesus. Number eight, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. Look at how he's described, verse 16. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Brilliant radiance, glory of Jesus Christ. You ever looked at the sun? Ever stare at it? I hope not very long you'll go blind, right? Well, that's what John's saying. John says, you know what? Looking at Jesus is like looking at the sun with, you know, a no overcast sky with Jesus. Just glorious. Now, here's the apostle John. Whenever he sees Jesus in all his glory, how does he respond? Check it out. Look at it in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. When he saw Jesus for who he really was, man, he fell down flat on his face. He said, I was like a dead man before Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this is that I believe that the Apostle John was probably the closest human relationship Jesus had whenever he was on this planet. I mean, John is described as the disciple Jesus loved. I mean, John is described at the Last Supper leaning on Jesus during the Last Supper. That, that during the crucifixion, you remember what happened at the crucifixion? Jesus looks down from the cross, sees John next to his mother, and says, John, I want you to take care of my mother. I mean, there's nobody on this planet that was closer to Jesus than the apostle John. And yet, when the apostle John sees Jesus, what does he do? Does he, you know, get up and say, hey, Jesus, you know, you know high five, give me a hug, you know, chest bump. No, he falls down dead. If that's the closest disciple of Jesus, what do you think it's going to be like whenever you see Jesus? Can I tell you something? You're not going to waltz up to Jesus and say, what's up, big man? No, you're going to fall down like a dead man too. Why? Because the Bible says that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the picture of Jesus, folks. Do you understand? That's the one we are worshiping every weekend. That's the one we're following and serving. That's the Jesus we're not, we're, not, we're not following meek and mild, humble Jesus. He was that way before. He came the first time. He got a crown of thorns. When he comes again, he's got to get a crown of gold. He's going to rule and reign. He is the king of kings. That's who Jesus Christ is today. Now, here's the deal. Why is that so important? Because whenever you're going through a time of persecution and difficulty and heartache and pain, you need to have the right vision of Jesus but the good news is that Jesus isn't just far and removed and glorious. No, he's right there with you. So look at the third thing. This is critical. Number three, let's talk about the presence of our Lord. The presence of our Lord. He's glorious, he's mighty, but he's also with us. Look what the Bible verse says, verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And look at this. And he, that's Jesus, laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. That in your time, whenever you're broken and you're face down before Jesus, Jesus reaches down and touches you and says, you know what? I may be mighty, but I'm also merciful. I may be high and lifted up, but I am right here with you, right where you are. And I'm sure that John probably remembered those times in his life whenever he was in the midst of chaos and Jesus came in and spoke, peace be still. Do not be afraid. That's exactly what's happening here. Now you may think, well, wait a minute. But Jesus, the church is being persecuted. And Jesus says, I know. Look at it, verse 17. 
I am the first and the last. I'm the eternal one. And nobody's coming before me. Nobody's coming after me. I'm the one who holds all this world in his hands. Nothing happens in your life unless it first sifts through the sovereign hands of Jesus Christ. I am the first and the last. But Jesus, Christians are being persecuted. Christians are dying. Jesus says, I know. Look at verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Christian, you don't have to be afraid of death if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus has conquered death. Death is a doorway to eternal life. When you breathe your last breath, you start breathing the breath of heaven. Jesus said, I've conquered death. You don't have to be afraid of death. Is that all the world can do to you is kill you? They killed me, and guess what? I've overcome that, and you'll overcome it as well. And so here's Jesus Christ, and he's comforting us, right? But notice how he's described. This whole passage starts off how? In verse 13, Jesus walking among us. Look at it. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. You go, what is that whole lampstands kind of thing? What is that about? Well, Jesus gives the interpretation for us in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does that mean? That means that right now Jesus is walking among us. That the lampstands represent the churches, and Jesus is seen how? Walking among the churches. Jesus sees you, He knows what's going on in your life. He's not aloof, He's not unconcerned. No, He sees you, He knows you, He loves you, He's with you. He walks with you through the difficulties and trials of life. So many times what happens when we go through a season of suffering, you go, God, where are you? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, God, why is this happening to me? And what you need to remind yourself is that the Holy One, Jesus Christ, is right there with you. He's not distant. No, he's right there with you. Whenever, listen, whenever you fall flat on your face before Jesus, Jesus is going to touch you on the shoulder and say, I'm right here. I'm the first and the last. I haven't left you at all through this. Now, why is that encouraging? Well, let me close in this way. I love the story of this young man, Douglas Mahler. He was a 15-year-old man. He, went to, he was admitted to the hospital with a high fever. They, they ran a battery of tests, and they discovered that this young man, Douglas, had leukemia. The doctor, you know, he didn't sugarcoat. He says, look, it's going to be hard. The next couple of years is going to be difficult. You're going to have a, number, a series of chemotherapy. Um, also, you know, most likely you're going to lose your hair. Your body's could have bloat a little bit. And then the doctor left. And Douglas literally, boom, went into a deep, dark depression. He was overwhelmed. And his family tried to encourage him, said, it's going to be okay. You heard the doctor said that, you know, this is awfully healed. And, you know, there's, you know he was just depressed. And, and so his aunt, you know, was just trying to encourage him, you know, called a florist and said, hey, would you send this, you know, these flowers to my nephew? He's at this hospital, and he's just been diagnosed with you know, leukemia, and he's really depressed. And so she wrote a little note to put with the flowers. And one of the flowers came, you know, Douglas looked at the flowers and looked at the note from his aunt. But then he noticed that there was a second note. And it read this way. Douglas, I took your order. I work at Bricks Florist. I had leukemia when I was seven years old. I'm now 22 years old. You're going to make it. Good luck. My heart goes out for you. Sincerely, Laura Bradley. 
And immediately, Douglas's face brightened. Why? I mean, he was surrounded by family that loved him and encouraged him. He was surrounded by medical equipment worth millions of dollars. He had the best medical team on his side. But what was it that encouraged him? A sales clerk at a florist who had gone through the same thing and said, you're going to make it. Well, here's Jesus Christ, Christian. No matter what you're going through, no matter how hard the road is, no how difficult the tribulation may seem, Jesus has already gone through it for you. He's on the other side. He reaches down with his hand, and he says, I've got you. I'm not leaving you or forsaking you. You're going to make it. I made it. You're going to make it. Folks, that's the promise of the book of Revelation for you. This is a wartime letter for Christians that are going through trials. And Jesus wrote it to you. Why? (laughs) To remind you of who you're fighting for. Don't give up. Don't give in. It's Jesus Christ. Worship him. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the connect card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus's final words to his disciples in the upper room. They're about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, We appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.